and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with the king of TikTok, the idol of Instagram and the star of Channel 5's A Taste of the Country, Julius Roberts. And I thought, you know what, I, I was so inspired by their stories, inspired by, you know, sustainability and a, a shift in agriculture. And I thought, I want to be one of them. I want to go and get my hands in the ground. I want to be more on the growing of the food than the cooking of the food. His debut cookbook, The Farm Table, is a beautifully written story of a young man following his dream from chefing to farming with goats who think they're dogs, pigs who love a tummy tickle and an idyllic walk through the seasons. An audience of 500,000 on both Instagram and TikTok has followed his inspiring journey to find himself while he's become one of the most compelling advocates for modern British food and regenerative farming. Give that man a Netflix show and he will save the planet. The Farm Table is my tip for the big awards next year and I took to Instagram to tell my world why. I asked him if he too had a sense that this book was special. I mean, I saw your post and I was very touched because this is my first time. I actually feel quite disconnected to the future of the book and the selling process and how it's doing, which I quite like. For me, the proud moments have been you know, handing in the last draft, uh, getting the first copy. It was actually like my mum and my girlfriend holding the first copy and their joy at it that really touched me. Um, Because you spend so long working on this thing. You know, it's two years of nonstop, gruelling hard work. Um, For me, yeah, it's funny where the special moments are, but it's generally in, you know, in in the friends and the families and the sharing of that book. And yeah, I'm very proud of it. You know, I think it is beautiful. I think artistically, Elena's photographs are just, you know, they make the book, they're absolutely jaw-dropping. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you're absolutely right. Your your writing and the photography um, and the capturing of something that's really special uh, all comes together in a very artistic way. It's very romantic, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But actually, you are an artist. You went to Brighton University um, to study sculpture, first of all. Um, I mean, what for you is that sort of connection between art and writing and what you're doing, that kind of meditation on the land? That's a nice way of putting it. Um, yeah, I've definitely got that creative gene. And I think my whole family do. Mum's an artist. Um, my brother loves printmaking. My other brother makes music. Um, and I think that that really played a part in the book. You know, I really knew how I wanted it to look and feel. And, you know, way back when, two years ago, I knew that it was going to be out the, about the seasons and wanted to give a real... I wanted to give a visceral sense for the people reading and cooking from it of where they were in that season and just bring it home to the farm. Use the farm and a year on the farm as the context for the food to really inspire people about why we eat what we do when and and to get connected to nature and let that affect what they choose to eat. Is there anything better than being freezing cold after a long walk? You know, when your fingers hurt, your nose is kind of so crisp from the air, coming home to that stew that's been cooking all day, that just, it was like meant to be, you know, when you're eating that thing that is just perfect for that moment, that's what I wanted this book to feel like. And that's the way we tried to make it is, it's not all written, taken to a publisher and then shot. We shot it and wrote it through the year, little by little, which is a really special way of making a book. And I think you can feel the way the light changes, you can feel the way the food changes and... Yeah, I think I think when you have that artistic gene, you can visualise. And, and I think it was the visualisation and the real trying to work out 
you know, what the book was going to feel like and be like from the start is what allowed it to be then created in that way. And I hope we've kind of fulfilled that idea. It absolutely does. Absolutely does. And in in fact, you know, going back to the sculpture in you, we see the shapes of the land, we see the shapes of the seasons. Um, And that's what brings a visceral quality to it as well. It's, It's very inviting. But actually, you know, you are huge on Instagram and you are huge on TikTok. Are you, do you feel like you're speaking to a younger generation? When you talk about inspiring, you know, what are you trying to do and to whom? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like if you make the mistake of realising how many people there are that you're speaking to that in the moment, it probably takes away the intimacy of it. So whenever I'm doing my videos or anything like that, I, I really feel like I'm just here at home on my farm talking to my phone. There's no... I, I really am not considering that that's going to X many people. But the message has always been true. And the message is just because it's purely what I believe and what I've begun to care about. You know, when you start looking after animals and you look them in the eye and they teach you just how individual, sensitive, characterful they are, you begin to worry about them and their their fellow kin who are in industrial farms. And for me, it's just been about trying to document the relationship between me and the land, between me and my animals, and use that as a way of sending a message, not by preaching, but by just showing the relationship between the two. And maybe my sort of awe at just how beautiful they are and how beautiful nature is and how much we should be protecting it. Yeah, I mean, I love that word inspiration. You know, it literally means I breathe in. Oh, wow. And I love that. Imagine all those thousands of people breathing in this wonderful message of yours. You know, then to exhale that out into the world, it means real change. But there's also, you know, amongst your generation, I've got two kids of 28 and 24, you know, and they're talking constantly about eco-anxiety mm. and that connection with what you eat and, and the industrialised process of food and its relationship with climate change is a real deal to you know your generation do you find people responding to you in that kind of conversation yeah definitely i think my generation have had this you know we we've grown up with the realization of all this stuff so it was in all our exams at school we studied it for us it's just like 100% fact there's no argument about what's going on we are all worried and all care and all trying to work out how we can affect change and you know what we can do to be better um i think the big thing is hope it can all get a bit um we're doomed can't it uh so for me it's always been like there is hope we can do it how do we do it what what small things can you do in your own lives to 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 affect change and i think people really do talk about it i think People are also amazingly unconscious about it when they want to be. Um, and that's the stuff I'd love to change. You know, that late night fried chicken sesh, you know, things like that, I think I'd love to see the end of. Um, but, you know, I, I remain hopeful. And I think my generation have got a lot of a lot of drive to fix what's going on. And, and anxiety is no bad thing because we should be worried too. You know, if you can use that to fuel change and let it inspire you then I think all the better absolutely I mean I read a fantastic book by Charlie Herzog Young on my holiday this summer and he's a 30 year old man who 
used his eco-anxiety to turn it into activism and mm. and hope is one of the biggest forms of activism and, and your book is absolutely full of hope let's let's go into your story you were at brighton university you went to london you started waiting your mother was mm. trying to get you into the restaurant <laughs> industry um, um you went to noble rot and you were, went from pot washer to chef how did that happen yes yeah, so it's interesting the place where i worked before noble rot um the, me and the manager there got on really well and it was one of those restaurants that was just doomed to fail it's just down the road from where I grew up and I think it had had 11 changes in seven years or something um and just the sous chef got fired the head chef got fired the head chef left the sous chef left it just kept happening and so I went from pot washer to cooking really quite fast it was a really quick run up the ladder which for some people might take a long time um, and he then left to go to Noble Rot and said, Julius, like, get out of here. Come on. I can see that you love cooking and you want, you want more. So just come and apply. They're looking for chefs and went and met them. Uh, got given a job. I don't know how. And basically got given a ton of responsibility from very early on and was cooking in a serious kitchen in a, in a restaurant that was getting a lot of praise. You know, it was packed. It was popping off. And it was so fun and I learned so much, but it was also so brutal and so difficult. Um, you know, the stress of a restaurant just opening for a first timer is quite a thing to undertake. And it started to take its toll on me big time. Yeah, I mean, you know, the adrenaline pumping through the kitchen is extraordinary. I mean, I remember Marco Pierre White was the very first chef I ever interviewed back in the was day. It? Yeah, <laughs> you know, when he was still at Harvey's. And I'm sure he's seen it all. He was just telling me about, you know, what it was like for a young man. I mean, you know, you're pumping at two o'clock in the morning. You're not going to go to sleep. You know, you get into all sorts of stuff and it really, really does take its toll. Did it feel like you really needed to get your hands muddy? Yeah, I think so. I think it was like I wanted to be outside. You know, I'd been I'd spent two years working in windowless basement kitchens in the heat and the fumes and the stress and the intensity. And every morning these producers would come in. My head chef was a relentless hunter for good supplies. That is the key to food is you've got to start with quality ingredients. Um, and these producers would turn up each morning and try and sell him their story. You know, we grew this beef by... And we'd be hearing about regenerative farming, um, you know, soil health and all these interesting ways they were growing tomatoes, whatever it might be. And I'm there yellow <laughs> and on my sixth coffee of the morning with two Lucases in the fridge ready for later, you know, just trying to survive. And there's these producers in there who are brown, blue eyed and just twinkling with life. And I thought, you know what, I, I was so inspired by their stories, inspired by, you know, sustainability and a, a shift in agriculture. And I thought, I want to be one of them. I want to go and get my hands in the ground. I want to be more on the growing of the food than the cooking of the food and inspire people about where their food comes from and, you know, get people growing or all this stuff. It was quite a naive, but a huge leap of faith that, that you know, just rooted me in this kind of more natural world and the seasons and it's just taken me on this amazing journey of learning. Well, naive is a really interesting word. I would say that was an absolute gut instinct to get yourself back to where you were meant to be. Yeah, it was a sort of happy-go-lucky, let's see where this takes me. I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, maybe when you have then the career that I've had or been having recently, people sort of think you have this intention. It was just an instinctual, let's get out there, let's start growing, let's see where it takes me. And it took you to a small holding and it started with the pigs. Tell us about it. It started with the pigs, yeah. 
My beautiful pigs. I mean, they were just sheer joy. I, I moved in the middle of winter, so it was too cold to grow any veg. Chickens didn't feel like enough of a commitment. You know, everyone keeps chickens. But pigs felt like a real, you know, a real seismic thing to do. And you have to keep pigs for quite a long time. So I thought it would keep me rooted. I, you know, I'd have to commit to the two years that I had these pigs. And, you know, by then I'd know if it's what I wanted to do. Because at the beginning, you know, my friends would be like, what are you doing? This is crazy. Um, and they just taught me so much. There's this great expression that cats look down at you, dogs look up at you, but pigs look right at you. And that's what they do. They look you right in the eye and you can properly engage with that animal. They are so individual, so full of life, um, very playful. They, they love nurture and scratches and, you know, affection and intimacy, um, you know, they want your attention and they play with my dogs. They chase them around the pen in circles. They lived in the woods, um, under a load of oak trees and just spent their life digging for acorns and like playing in the muck. They had a stream to drink from. It was paradise. And they just taught me so much. You know, I felt so, I just totally fell for those pigs and, and, and was shocked at just how much there was. I, f I feel like you know, the modern world of meat is a bit of a, like, behind the curtains, isn't it? We, we don't really get allowed to understand just how intelligent and special these animals are because it makes eating meat easy and what happens to them easy. And for me, it was this, like, oh, my gosh. Um, I'm, like, totally in love with these pigs. I've got to kill them one day, which is just a brutal thing to be looking down the barrel of. Not only that, I've got to do it with an audience because people are watching me online. And also, you know, there's a huge part of me that doesn't want to do it. And, and that's what I started to share was show people just how great they were and my relationship with them to start making them realize like, oh my gosh, these are, these are not just like food. These are animals with minds. And then also document that journey of that, you know, my moral dilemma. Because yeah. that's just so, such an interesting place to be. Yeah, I do a lot of work with Compassion and World Farming and Deborah Meaden is one of their ambassadors. And she says, you know, if people realised that pigs were just like Labradors, you'd, they'd never... Mm. But yeah, that's you, what I always say. They're just, you know, my relationship to my dog is just as it was with the pigs. But, yeah, but, ben, yeah, but you're right. As a farmer, you do have to, you know, give them a great life, but you do mm. have to dispatch them is the kind of you know the word that kind of hides the reality how did you manage it um well I sort of dug very deep I suppose I thought that look, if I can't take these animals to the abattoir I shouldn't be eating meat at all you know they have lived an impeccable life I couldn't have done better for them um and you know and yes it should be hard that's what it's taught me is eating meat should be hard um but my thought was like, I can't just do the easy route and get my meat from the supermarket every time or the butcher. You know, if I can't take these pigs in, how could I take a pig that's lived a worse life? So that, that was my decision. It was, you know, I, I do, I think a lot of, there's this subjective question whether you or not you want to eat meat. And for me, I think there is a way that we can if they've lived a really good life. And if you and value you, their life. Yeah, exactly. And then if you then make the most of it, you know, I think if you eat small quantities, you respect it and it has a good life. I think it's OK. But what's objectively just not on is these animals living miserable lives for us to eat, you know, meat twice, three times a day with just no respect, you know, just no thought whatsoever. And that's where it's come to, you know, I've come to is that most of my life, most of my days, I'm vegetarian. 
and I occasional meat and it's damn good quality i know exactly where it's come from and that it's had a good life yeah and that's my side of the argument i get quite a lot of flack from veggies and vegans because people get very confronted by me and my farm and you know i think i make i show just how beautiful these animals are and they see that and they can't quite comprehend how i can then eat them and for me it's that i think it's a lot easier to change the minds of meat eaters to eating better meat than it is to persuade people to just stop eating meat you know, meat eating in our little bubble, it feels like vegetarian veganism is on the rise, but in the wild, it's not at all. Meat eating is going up. Exactly. And it, and it also supports the right kind of farming, the, kind yeah, of the regenerative exactly. farming. Uh, it makes people think about more deeply about where they can get their meat from when they're going to restaurants as well. Mm. Um, I think that the more vegans, the more vegetarians in the world, the better. That's absolutely Agreed. great. Agreed. Well, a part of me thinks they're sort of lost to the cause in, the, in a way, if all, of, you know, if all of them just ate a little bit of meat and got the really good stuff, we'd be encouraging the meat industry to change. Yeah, that's what I want. Uh, you know animals can be an amazing part of the environment and you know my my animals here on the farm they boost nature you know the you know the bugs the flies everything thrives because of their existence the grasses the wildflowers it's all about soil health absolutely um Mm. eating the whole animal is a huge part of uh that philosophy and your first food moment is chicken liver toast um offal tell me about offal yeah so I, my granny was Dutch and had that very European attitude towards food. It was just the center of her life. She had this little diary with a, a, a rectangle inside it on the page. And every single dinner party or lunch party she cooked for her friends, she wrote down who sat where, what they wore, what they ate, what she ate, what she cooked, what it cost, what went wrong, what went right. If, you know, Mrs. Doris was wearing too short a skirt, there's all these hysterical comments in there. She was just so foodie and, like, you know, it was part of her soul. And we spent every single Christmas, Easter, bank holiday, holiday, you name it, up at hers in the countryside. And, you know, she'd take me foraging for mushrooms. We'd make elderflower cordial. And I was just so inspired by her. She cooked on a, an arga, you know, an old style stove. And I'd sit next to her on the hot plate, kind of warming my bum with my socks against the doors as she cooked. And she'd make these amazing gravies, these roasts. I was just captivated. But something that she really loved was offal. And as a six-year-old, eight-year-old, me and my brothers would get, you know, we'd be sitting at the kitchen table and we'd have a plate of livers plonked in front of us or an ox tongue or lamb's hearts. And that's quite confronting as a kid. Um, She was also old school, you know, she was super strict. There was no way you were leaving that table until your plate was clean. And we would sit there for hours. Um, She'd be doing the crossword just kind of with this knowing grin of, you know, I'm doing the right thing here. And, you know, I think she kind of loved watching us squirm too. And she'd just sit there. Um, I was quite good at just wolfing it down. My two younger brothers would, they'd be there for hours, you know, the whole day, um, you know, battling her of these sort of stubborn wills. Um, but what it taught me was that actually, you know, you, you can learn to love anything. And I learned to really love her livers. She'd do these cumin spice livers um, sometimes on toast, sometimes in pitters with a kind of tzatziki or whatever it was. And it's become one of my favourite foods. And uh, I thank her so much for teaching me how to like that stuff. Because for a lot of people, you know, only eating the chicken breast or the lamb fillet or whatever it is, you know, a lot of the rest of the animals going in the bin. Yeah. And that's really, really yeah. sad, you know. And it's really good for you. You know, it is delicious. You just got to learn. I used to hate anchovies. 
but now they're one of my favorite ingredients in the world you know we should all just be you know i think it just should be part of our diet like like it is in europe like it is in the middle east you know everywhere around the world really apart from some western countries yeah it really feels looking through your recipes it feels like a capturing very much of british food now yeah. so you've got that homage to your you know your dutch granny with her uh, chicken livers and the kind of the honor of the animal straight into you know your homemade pasta it mm. it all of these recipes feel like this wonderful kind of melting pot that British food is, you're bringing all these wonderful influences. You're not stubborn about it, like the Italians and the French and the Spanish are about their traditions. You know, we have this wonderful unstable food culture here where we just mm. bring it all in. Yeah, we love that. We'll have that. We'll have that now. Does it feel like that to you? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I, I feel like I just... The, the book is just a food that comes from my family's kitchen. We're a family who loves food. We all cook. And this is just the kind of thing we make each other. It's very humble home cooking, you know, with pride and, and with ingredients that we love and that we've grown and with attitudes that we, you know, really believe in and value. Um, and, you know, I, I firmly believe that Britain is a part of Europe and I love our neighbours and their food. And so, you know, of course, I use the ingredients and the techniques and all these things that I've learned from them um, and, and try and show off British food as just, you know, as good as some of the food in Europe. You know, we get laughed at, <laughs> but I think, you know, we do have amazing cuisine here. And, you know, thank you to the Jeremy Lees, the Fergus Hendersons, the Margos, the the legends that came before me. And I hope I'm just adding to that mix of lovely British recipes. Yeah. So why did you choose as your second food moment, the cavatelli and the courgette pasta? That, that dish was more just as a nudge that everyone should grow a little something at home if they can. And herbs and courgettes are a great place to start. Courgette is this kind of unkillable plant that is so generous and will give you so many um, courgettes to eat across the season with no effort whatsoever. And then herbs are just, for me, one of my favourite things to add into my dishes. I think they add a lovely pop of colour, a lovely element of flavour, and also they're so easy to grow. You know, plant some mint in your garden, some tarragon, and it will take over. They fill in the nooks and crannies so well. They all flower, you know, all season and provide amazing food for the pollinators. And also this cavatelli thing is a type of pasta made with just flour and water. So it's not got egg in. You don't have to use a fancy machine. You just have the dough. The poor people's pasta. Exactly. It's Italian povera cuisine from the southern part of Italy where you wouldn't waste an egg in some pasta. You just use water and flour. Um and what I love about it is that you just put the dough on the middle of the table with a wet tea towel on top of it. I've got my brother on my left, a friend on the right, you know, you know, clustered round our, our ball of dough. And you just sit and chat with a glass of wine or a beer, rolling out your individual portions of pasta. And it's one of those lovely things where food is the coming together, you know, the action. And, and I love just the simplicity of that pasta, you know, for people at home, I can totally see why they don't use a pasta machine and all that faff. But this is one of the pastas that you just, we should all be making because it's super fun. It's like, it's like Play-Doh, you know, great to make with your kids, but it's also a lovely chance to sit at the table even longer, make a point of the meal that you're eating and enjoy that moment. Um, We've had such funny times with that dough in front of us, you know, chatting away. My daughter sent me, uh, my 24 year old daughter sent me a picture of her dinner party the other day. She says she just moved into her first house post-university. Post wow. And exciting. she's sitting there with four of her friends making gnocchi. That's what they do. No, right? Yeah, I love that. 
you do make it sound terribly easy and terribly idyllic, you know, goats in and out of your house <laughs> thinking they're dogs and, uh, you know, the pigs and, and, the, and the fishing in the summer. Your third food moment is the sardine pan con tomate, but very much Dorset, you and your mates. Tell me about this moment. So we, we live on the sea down here, just, just near the coast. Um, and at this time of year, actually, and late, late summer and autumn, essentially, uh, the mackerel come in and from the cliffs, you can literally see these shoals of mackerel uh, shimmering in the water. And what they are doing is chasing the white bait. And on certain days when the tide is right, you go down to the sea and the white bait will just be crashing against the beach, escaping these shoals of mackerel who are fizzing in the water. They're literally right there. Um, I've been down there with, you know, shepherds fishing for mackerel while their sheepdogs run up and down eating the white bait off the shore, you know, by the thousands. It's crazy. And with a few feathers on a rod, you can catch 30, 40 mackerel on a good night. And my brother and I will go down, we'll just fish, fish till we were like, right, this is enough. Um, because that means a lot of gutting when you get home. Um, but quite often we'll bring down, you know, a couple of beers in the bag um, a few tomatoes from the polytunnel. We grow a lot of very beautiful tomatoes. Uh, a loaf of bread from the local bakery and a jar of just homemade salsa verde. And you cook up these mackerel on the beach just over a fire made from like driftwood and seaweed and have it on just with just grated tomato on garlicky bread. And it is just one of the most idyllic things. And it's one of those moments where everything is grown or caught and, and baked just in like a mile radius. Um, and it's such a delicious dish. That's a fusion of, um, you know, Spanish culture. And I, you know, I love that kind of snacky um, culture that they have over there and like English ingredients. Traditionally, it would be sardines in Spain. I use mackerel or sardines here, depending on what's available. And it's just so good. It's just so good. And it's such a happy little food memory. You know, I, there's nothing better for me than being out there in the evening, the sun setting, fishing away, you know, the whole um, beach will just be um, dotted with men with their rods um, and, and, you know, families playing while fish are being caught and the smells, the barbecues, it's just so great. You see, that's what I mean by this sort of snapshot of British food. It is very, very simple what you write about and mm. what you cook and what you do. But it's telling that story that's so important. It's kind of reminding us what's really under our noses. Is mm. that kind of the point? I suppose so. It's, it's like, you know, how lucky am I to be able to go and do that? But it is under all of our noses. Anyone can cook that dish. It's not hard to fry a piece of mackerel and chuck it on grated tomato toast. But the joy you'll get from it is just so great. And, you know, if you can get out there on the sea and fish a way to do it, all, all the better. Um, Maybe also, I, I quite loved it, like sardines and mackerel are slightly underloved fish, which is a shame because they're one of our most populous fish, you know, compared to the big five whose populations are being decimated. There's a lot of mackerel and sardines out there. They're very good for you. And if you can get them fresh, I think it's the best fish there is. So it's just trying to gently touch on those things, I suppose. Your, your fourth food moment is hilarious, really. It took a restaurant like Noble Rock to teach you how to make bread and butter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why did you choose that? Well, I suppose now making bread and butter has become just a second instinct to me. But before I worked in food, you know, I would have never have made a mayonnaise or a thing like that. Um, and I think this is just a nice way of showing people it is just that easy if you just if you just do it. 
And it's also just to like remember the times. I, I turned up in the morning at Noble every single day and baked bread. That's That was my first job. I made bread at lunch, bread in the morning and bread in the evening for the next day. Um, and our bread plate was like lauded across London. We had an amazing focaccia. We had a soda bread and we had sourdough from Coombshead Farm. And it was just epic with a cult, with a, we used to whip butter from French creme fraiche. So it had this acidity and saltiness to it. It was so good. Um, and this is just a nod back to those days and what it taught me and what it instilled in me, you know, to start wanting to make all these things myself. But my twist is this with tomatoes from our polytunnel, which we, we, you know, we have glut of in autumn. You know, we never know what to do with all our tomatoes. Um, and they're baked on top of the focaccia with lots of rosemary and salt and olive oil, which is so nice. And you have this uber fluffy bread with whipped ricotta, which is just a lovely form of like creamy dairy and a rough bash together pesto. Um, and you just kind of dip and dunk and share that around the table, tearing off um, hunks of focaccia. It's so good. It's so good. So let's talk telly. It was Hugh Vanley Whittingstall who kind of inspired you back in the day um, to start thinking about, you know, doing it yourself. Is TV even a thing these days for someone like you? Yeah, I, I grew up in River Cottage, so that he's a huge part of my journey. Um, I I used to just devour his shows as a kid. And Nigel and Ottolenghi, Jamie, you know, all those, like the, my TV heroes from back in the day. They inspired in me, along with my granny, you know, this want to cook food. And I used to have their cookbooks on my bedside table and I'd read them like late into the night. Um, and I just think that in a time where our, the way we eat is becoming more and more important and more and more critical to our survival, shows like that should be on TV and they're just not really, you know, they're not in the same way that they were. It was like classic TV back in the day, but it's not anymore. And so, yeah, I, I you know, I am chomping at the bit to do another show. But your people, mm. you know, the people who watch you on TikTok, they don't watch telly anymore. My kids don't watch telly. I think, so I, so I don't watch TV either. We don't have, like, TV TV. But if I hear that a great show is on, I will go and stream that on BBC iPlayer or whatever it might be. Um, I think my... I mean, if I, as a kid, devoured that kind of stuff, I don't see why, you know, my, my generation and a bit younger wouldn't still devour it now. And people, you know ask for it and want it you know chef's table was a massive hit i devoured that show on netflix i think the appetite really is there also what's nice about what i could do is a bit more of a like you know it'd be it'd be a lot about nature and the land and learning the seasons and you know my trials and tribulations of being a first gen farmer and all the stuff that that hits me with along the way yeah all wrapped up with eco anxiety and the hope that you need to give at this time of enormous change so many people never get a chance to see these animals. You know, for me, one of the most touching moments is when you watch a lamb being born and you watch these mother's instincts as they like tentatively turn around to their lamb that's been, you know, really difficult to give birth to and they lick it for the first time, they nudge it, waiting to hear the first splutter. The instant connection of those two together, the beauty of just how sensitive they are, you know, it's so like us. And I think, you know, if people... Some of the things that have happened to me here have changed my life. They've been such poignant lessons into the natural world. And I think that anyone watching that would be blown away because it is just mind-blowing. And also the joy of, you know, I've had it where those lambs are stuck and I've had to go and rescue it. And without knowing what on earth I'm doing, you know, cover my arms in animal lube and go in there and pull out a stuck lamb, untangling its legs, unwrapping its head. 
and you know to watch yeah i think i think if people were to watch that they'd they would be just captivated so i think the appetite is there and and it shows a lot of hope and it shows just how beautiful the natural world is and how lucky we are to be part of it which we often forget Thanks for listening. Please do go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review Cooking the Books. And then head over to my Substack where you'll find much more from Julius. Just click on the link in the show notes. And I'll see you next week. Bye.